Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. What if you knew exactly how to use cold email, LinkedIn, the phone, and other sales channels to get new meetings and customers for your B2B product or service? Morgan Williams is an enterprise sales rep that's obsessed with cold outreach. If you're sick and tired of fluff, theory, and general advice on how to sell to cold prospects from people who haven't sold anything in the past 20 years and instead want detailed, tactical, step-by-step instruction, this is the podcast for you. Each week, he'll interview salespeople, consultants, and entrepreneurs about actual outbound sales campaigns they've run with real numbers and results. Each conversation will be a deep dive into deconstructing a specific campaign's results, as well as the strategy behind it. You'll get the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see what's actually working now in cold outreach. Welcome Welcome to to Outbound Outbound Metrics. Chris Beal is the CEO of Connect and Sell. Connect and Sell helps sales reps get on the phone with 10x more decision makers with zero effort. It also gives managers perfect visibility, control, real-time coaching, and continuous improvement without violating anyone's privacy. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Are you ready to dive in? Hey, Morgan. I am ready. Awesome. I see you have a background in physics and psychology. How did you get into sales? Well, it was kind of funny. I started my first business when I was 11 years old. I had to sell something, and it was just a friend of mine and I walking around door to door in this desert neighborhood we lived in. It's kind of funny when you knock on a door, you got to overcome a lot, right? Especially when you're 11. Although you have some advantages, they're not going to treat a kid too bad. I went off and got myself a degree in in physics education and also spent a lot of time in in the realm of psychology, especially neuropsych, actually, always very interested in how the brain works and what we really are in there. And then had a a family situation where my first wife had had a miscarriage and I needed to make some money to cover medical bills, had no medical insurance. That was a long time ago. This wasn't like it would be today. They'd charge you $50,000 to look at you from across a room or something like that. But it was still real money. And so I needed to get a job literally in a day. And the job I got in a day was to be a fuller brush man. And I looked at, you know, fuller brush sold door-to-door household products. And it was the biggest door-to-door company around, I think, at one point. And uh, so imagine doing that, no sales background, no training. They didn't really train you, or they tried, and it made no sense. And uh, it's, it's in Arizona and Phoenix. It's 110 degrees out. You're knocking on people's doors and trying to buy, sell something, get them to buy something from a company they'd never heard of before. I got into sales because I broke that down and I said, well, the psychology of this is just ridiculous. Nobody's going to buy something because I knock on their door. So I developed a two-step technique that got me to be the top fuller brush man in Arizona in about two weeks. And essentially, that kind of got me going with the intellectual interest in how is sales really broken down? What's it really made of? I mean, I knew it was important. My dad had an MBA. I'd read 
pretty much every book in the house. When you're reading a lot of Drucker and Harvey McKay and stuff like that, is this like, is this a real discipline or is it just something people do? And what I got intrigued by was that it's possible it's a real discipline. Now I went off and just started, started companies. I'm a tech guy, built a lot of code, millions of lines of code, that kind of stuff. And I got tired of people not selling my products. You want them to sell. In the early market, you really have got to sell. You just invented something. It's not going to sell itself. So, you know, I just got intrigued with that. And it's all been in the context of building businesses ever since. Awesome. Now, I got to ask you, what is that two-step technique? Oh, it's simple. So here's my thinking. (laughs) When you knock on somebody's door, it's 110 degrees out. They open that that door, right? Air conditioning's pouring out into the street. It's costing, I don't know what, $2 a minute or something like that. What are you going to say in order to move forward? Well, buy my stuff ain't going to work. I thought, well, what can I do? First, I just pared away what I can't do and said, well, what I can do is offer to do some research for this person. My technique was this. It'd be, usually it was a lady. It wasn't, it wasn't you, but I'll, I'll make it be you. It's like, hi, I'm Chris Beal. I'm new, your new Fuller Brush man. You probably don't know what Fuller Brush is. I sure don't. And then I'd just stand there. <laughs> and eventually they'd ask, how can I help you? It's kind of funny. So the relationship started with them offering to help me, which was a pretty good idea. And I'd say, well, I have no real idea what we sell, but I've heard that we have some products that are really good around the house that uh, you can't find in stores. And if I were to go and do some research and find one or two of those, I think would really change your life. Can I come back and share them with you? Everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. Because it was a way to make me go away they could shut the door, and they could feel good about themselves. And that was the, the insight that the very beginning of a sales relationship is often an ambush. And in that ambush, I knock on your door, you answer the door, you didn't think it was going to be a fuller brush man, right? I've ambushed you. Now we have a problem. It's kind of an awkwardness problem. You have a goal. You want to shut that door, but you have a constraint. You want to keep your self-image intact. You don't want to be a jerk. How do we ride that little wave right there, the tension between those, those two uh, situations, the goal and the constraint? And the answer I stumbled onto my first day as a Fuller Brushman is, you offer to do something for somebody. And by offering to do something for them, it lets them go about their business and they trust you a little bit. And then you actually fulfill your promise and come back. And I did fulfill my promise. I did the research. And I came back, I had two products for each person. One you would buy from me if you didn't hate me. And I mean, it was so cheap and it was so interesting. I had it at about seven things that I would sell to the seven different demographics. That was about a dollar each. You all, if you didn't have a dollar, you probably weren't living in that neighborhood. And you could make me go away again by buying it if you wanted. But once we broke the ice and you were buying something from me, Maybe you'd let me go kill a black widow spider for you, and uh, you might buy 12 cans of spider spray for 120 bucks. <laughs> you turn yourself from, you know, essentially an annoyance in the very, very beginning, you're interrupting someone's day, to an invited guest when you're coming in second time around, offering value. Very interesting. I love it. You also mentioned a point there in your background about building companies, products, and people not selling it. I want to take this into what you mentioned about just selling really early on, like focusing on um, selling when you're inventing a product. What did you see was the fundamental disconnect between 
Is it product and the sales force? Or why sales teams had difficulty selling those products? Well, I think in the early market, it's always difficult to sell because you're selling to somebody who's fundamentally skeptical about what you have because is it real or is it not? And you got to recognize where you are and why they're potentially buying. And I thought it was really, I found it really hard for salespeople to parse out the situation and say, oh, I had a product once that I invented and I, was, I sold it to four companies. I sold it to uh, Corporate Express, WW Granger, Oracle, and SAP. None of my salespeople would have been able to do those deals because recognizing the why behind each one of those prospects, like getting their business and why they do such a crazy thing. And that last deal, by the way, was, it, was, it was more than $100 million bucks. And this is a product that I'd, I'd come up with in a, in a Barnes & Noble bookstore in Boulder, Colorado one day. Uh, out of desperation, by the way, because my technology had been bought out from under me by a, a competitor. And so I had to do something. And each one of those, though, as I considered, like, what am I going to do with these folks? I'm going to delve into their business and see where this might fit. And I'm going to ignore my product for a while. And salespeople have a hard time ignoring the product and ignoring the prospect of a commission. Those two things. I, the second one I call the dog and the bone and the chain link fence problem. You put a dog on one side of a chain link fence, you put a bone or a piece of juicy meat on the other side, they'll try to go through the fence. They can't get through the fence. Mm -hmm. The fence is made of wire and it's going to cut their nose up. But the idea of backing up, looking around and finding the gate that's 10 feet away that's open never occurs to the dog. And it never occurs to most salespeople that the direction to go in order to make a successful relationship turn into a sale is almost never going right at them. You almost always have got to back up, be patient, sincerely try to understand their business what their, and their situation, especially their situation, their internal politics, and then wait until you have a chance to, to make an offer, to do something generous. And when you do that, then you flip the whole thing around. But most salespeople can't do it. We put them under pressure. It's our fault as managers. We put them under pressure to do right. something this quarter. And I would say most of sales was developed in a world of selling commodities, disposing of inventory. We have either a farm or a factory and stuff's coming off the, off the fields, out of the fields, and it can only last so long in the silo, or it's coming out of the factory and it's got to be disposed of. Sales was really, in our economy, a mechanism for disposing of the inventory at sufficient gross profit to keep the lights on that you can keep running, keep the factory running, and maybe expand if you have excess profits. You have another way of getting capital to expand. I'll call that classic capitalism. But in modern capitalism, we make products that have no physical existence. It's very common. We have services and we have software. The two S's, neither one physically exists. Services a little bit more. I've got my bench, I got my peep. You know, my peeps, they're doing something. Software. What does it cost mm -hmm. to make another copy of a piece of software? In the cloud, there aren't even copies. You just hook up to it. You don't have any inventory to dispose of, but the discipline of sales was developed in a world where its purpose was to dispose of inventory. That's its business purpose. And therefore, it has to dispose of it quickly in time because more of it's coming off the line. We're making more widgets. Mm -hmm. Get rid of this stuff. Nobody says that, but it's like they say a bunch of flowery things. But if you stand back from the... Right. CFO's perspective and say, what's going on? It's like the inventory is going out and it's got to turn back into cash. 
Otherwise, we got a problem. Well, it's the salesperson's job to take their territory plus the inventory and turn it into a flow of cash in a certain amount of time. And I think that old way of looking at sales really hampers modern sales. Because now, while time is a constraint, that is, overhead is still eating at us, right? We run every day, and your overhead is going to chomp away at your balance sheet. You're not quite in the same level of hurry, and you actually need, because almost everything's more interesting, so to speak, it's not a commodity. Even CRM's not a commodity yet. It's, it's unique. Each one is unique. Mm-hmm. And your situation as the buyer is both fraught, you're risking your career, and unique. Is it going to integrate with all of our stuff? Who knows, right? So you've got to end up trusting right. somebody a lot with your career on a matter that you can't be expert on. And it has no physical existence. You can't hold it in your hand. You can't, you're doing a bake-off. You ain't not doing a bake-off. You think you're A-B testing? Trust me, you're just exercising your biases. It's very, very interesting that sales is still called sales, but it's almost a different animal because it has a different business purpose, which is to allow us to expand in the market, to expand our footprint so that we can upsell. I mean, even a subscription is always an upsell, right? At the end of the year, if they buy more, they bought more. Right. It's an upsell. I don't care what you call it, right? So it's, a, it's just a new world we live in, and I, I cut my teeth in that world. I've been building software companies for 42 years. I want to take, like you, you mentioned, this old way of sales is, is clashing with modern sales. We're, we're taking this old playbook and trying to map it to modern sell it, selling, and there's friction there. You gave the example. I would love to go back to that example you gave of uh, the product idea you had in the Barnes & Noble bookstore, and then that leading to that $100 million deal with, I think it was, deal was with SAP. That last one? SAP. It really behooved you to just like back up, wait, figure out the why behind how SAP could use this technology for their business purposes. But I'd like to dig into that, starting with the idea to give people an idea of like this modern sales process. Sure. Or, or this better sales Well, process. for one thing, I decided to go first. And so I actually went and did the other three deals, got enough cash. We had no cash when we started that process. But then at that point, by the time I was selling to SAP, over about uh, four months, I'd managed to put together these three other deals, and we had about, with some investment from one of those companies, about $11 million in the bank. Suddenly, we went from paupers on the street with their hand out asking for money to we, we could execute. But then I could be, afford to be patient, and patience is the number one thing in sales, in my opinion. Impatience ruins more deals. They say time kills all deals. I say impatience kills them before time has a chance. And what did I not know? Well, I didn't really know much about SAP, but I knew that they had a place, a headquarters kind of in California, and I could go visit it. The first thing I did was I just opened my mind to the possibility of learning something and went and visited. And I had lunch there every day. That was the the weakness in their system was they'd let guests have lunch. It was fabulous. And eventually, it took about a month and a half, I, I overheard a conversation about their big demo center. And their demo center was sitting empty. Every day I'd walk through and I'd notice it's sitting empty. They must have cost millions of dollars. Why no demos? But that turned out to be the business problem for one person. The guy who owned that demo center solved his problem, which was, why aren't you demoing any SAP products? And the answer was, we have a new interface on these products that was done by this company called Frog Design. And we're, on, we're only allowed to demo products with that interface. 
I said, well, what's wrong? He says, well, it's going to be like a year before those products are out. I said, well, if I got my product to have that interface on it, would you demo it? Solved a problem for him. He could use his demo center. And we could say my product was an SAP product by putting the SAP interface on it, which we had done by noon the next day. And we were demoing, right? We solved somebody's problem, a problem that I think most salespeople, they would have been going after, okay, so this is electronic cataloging technology. How does it fit in with your cataloging strategy, SAP, for business-to-business procurement, blah, blah, blah. Sure, I talked all that stuff, but I was looking for that individual who had the power to move the relationship forward, who had a specific need for what I had to offer. And I was being, I thought I was trying to be open-minded about what I had to offer. What I had to offer was filling the demo center, which by the way, made them demo my product over and over and over. And after a while, they just <laughs> thought of it as their product. And so we OEM'd my product into their product and I shipped them two Goldmaster CDs a year and they paid roughly $20 million a year for six years to do that. You went out and first off, you immersed yourself into the business by just physically being there, having lunch every day and found someone with a problem, right? I think like a lot of salespeople today are trained to just sell the solution, find a buyer, sell the solution, not necessarily looking to solve problems. They're not really incentivized to solve problems or incentivized to sell the solution a certain amount of times, a certain dollar amount over each quarter or each year, right? I love this example. It's a really good context to going in, finding a problem, and, and really, this is adding value. Adding value is tossed around a lot these days. This is adding value, is solving that specific problem for that individual. Great example there. Yeah, it's funny about adding value, just to point that, point out something about that. I believe most folks in sales say adding value means doing something that, that really has another purpose, which is to advance the sale. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. You actually, it, it's like modern selling is an act of faith. You have to believe that you as an expert and your product as a special thing, something special in the world, will, will naturally be appealing once you understand each other and once you understand the, the real nature of the problems. Almost all the real problems around buying, say, enterprise software are political problems. They're, they're not like these, these are not like buying cookies or something that you're going to put on everybody's desk. This is buying something you're going to integrate into their company's mm-hmm. life. And their company's life is essentially political. Everybody is trying to do one thing. They're trying to de-risk their career. When you sell into larger companies especially, I can assure you there is one problem everybody has. They're trying to avoid a career problem, whatever it is. They don't want to make a mistake. (laughs) The higher level they got, the more exposed they feel. And so when you look Mm -hmm. at it from that perspective, the, the question you can always ask yourself is, how can I understand this person's concerns about career risk and can I help there? That's actually the universal problem that you can go after. Now that doesn't mean it's a specific problem because each one is now unique, but at least it gives you context because it's much more likely to lead to more information flowing your way, better understanding. You might decide to disengage at some point. You might learn something along the way that says, this is going to either take too long or it's not going to fit. And you'll learn that in conversations with somebody. But if you think about it in terms of people, not companies, 
that are that you're engaging with, and a person in particular, why is that person going to move forward with you in the next stage of the relationship? Well, I know why they're going to not move forward with you when you put them at career risk. Absolutely. I think I learned that back when I sold cybersecurity. I worked for a category leader, but not like a market leader. And that was something that our VP of sales used to always kind of put in our heads is that this CIO, CTO would be taking a chance on us. This person, him or her, they're not going to get fired for buying Cisco, right? They're not going to get fired for buying SecureWorks, right? Really interesting buying psychology. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's rampant throughout, especially these large enterprises, like you were mentioning, is there's people at that level, they're highly skilled. Like you said, they have a lot of exposure and everyone wants to be successful, but they want to first and foremost avoid that downside risk for themselves personally. Super important. Selling in the early market, how much do you focus on sales really early on? Like what is your... When do you start focusing on sales once you develop a product? Or what does that look like in the early stages? Yeah, my view is you should focus on sales before you develop the product. Because you're guessing. Mm-hmm. And the less you can guess, uh, the more likely your product is to be meaningful to somebody early on. The I had a brilliant idea, I'm going to go off into the lab, develop the product, come back out, and then sell it to people. is predicated on a false notion, which is you need the product to sell the product. You actually just need to know what the product might be for in order to sell the product. My um, advice to folks who build companies, and I guess I can do this safely from the standpoint that I've been doing it for four decades and doing it like this, is just go sell the product first. Go get conversations with people that will allow you to assess whether the problem that you're addressing resonates with them. And just gather that information. And don't gather it through a survey. Gather it by selling. Folks won't tell you the truth about what they're going to do until you ask them to actually do it. Go ahead and sell it. Put a price on it. Put a kind of a delivery package around it. Don't build it yet. And go have those meetings. That's actually something we really advocate with our product, with Connect and Sell, is look, before you build it, just make a list. That's your hypothetical market. And start talking to people and use a little five-sentence script that'll allow you to figure out if the overall problem resonates with them. And then measure the appointment taking. If you can get appointment setting above 5%, and you can get appointment taking above 60% net show rates, you probably have a solution for that marketplace. That's about right. Because at 5%, you figure that in any given solution area, the replacement cycle for products that, and solutions in that area is about three years. You've got 12 quarters in those three years. So you've got maybe you know, 8%, 9% of the potential market is in market this quarter. And those are the ones that are ready to take a meeting. It's not top of mind for anybody else. It's timing issues. With a perfect market, you are out of market timing-wise for 11 twelfths of your market. So see if you can find the 1 twelfth. And if you can get 50% of the 1 twelfth, that's about 5% to take a meeting with you about a problem, you have concrete evidence that that's a worthwhile problem to solve. Then you take that information back from those meetings and you build your MVP, your minimum viable product. And now you have partners to take that product to market with because they've already agreed to buy it. The only thing you don't have yet is timing. The fact is any product can be built nowadays. It's very hard to come up with a product idea that's impossible. Flying cars, sure, they're really hard. 
But almost everything in the world of, that we live in now where there's lots of software out there can be built. But should it be built? Yeah, it's a different question. So why not find out if it should be built by going out and selling it before you build it? Couching this into connect and sell, how, when did you get the idea? And can you walk us through this, how you kind of map this framework to the early stages of connect and sell and, and selling and building that product? Well, this is a funny company for me, connect and sell, because I didn't come up with the product. In fact, I met a guy, Sean McLaren, who's the CEO, upon the request of a former employee. And Sean is such an interesting person, I went to meet with him, even though I had no interest in the company's product. It looked like a dialer to me. Well, I don't do other people's products, and I certainly don't do dialers. I mean, that's just craziness. But I'll do a 6.30 AM meeting at the Rosewood Hotel with the guy who invented the IBM mainframe storage industry. That I will do. Especially a guy that there was a rumor he had died. Meeting a dead guy, are you kidding me? I mean, it was like a combo plate, right? I just stumbled into it. He told me what the company was doing, and I joined on the spot. It wasn't supposed to be a job interview, but I, I just told him, hey, I'm working for you now. And he said, well, wh- what do you mean? What if I'm not hiring? I said, Sean, it's a free country. Well, this is America. I can yeah. work for whomever I want. <laughs> you can pay me or not. I recommend you do. I've heard it stabilizes the employer-employee relationship, and you're going to want this to be stable. And so I joined up as VP of Products. Actually, when I brought the product home to my wife, now late wife, she said, what? You did what? (laughs) I said, I joined this company called Connect and Sell. And she said, you have a boss? I said, yeah. She says, oh, that's great. I'll give it two weeks. And she turns away like no second thoughts, right? And then she said, oh, Connect and Sell, that's interesting. My company uses that. She was an EA at a Silicon Valley software company, a storage company, open source storage. And she said, our reps love that thing, but I would never transfer one of those calls. And I said, interesting. She protects her boss from salespeople. I went and found two recordings where she had, three recordings where she transferred to her boss, and I played one of them for her. And I asked her, why'd you transfer? And she said, well, the the guy had an admin making calls for him. What was I going to do, hang up on her? It gave me some (laughs) insights into the product. The genius of Connect and Sell is really simple. It's become very hard to get people on the phone. Because of voicemail, ubiquitous voicemail starting around 2003, and ubiquitous caller ID starting around 2003. And you got to the point by 2005 or six where maybe one in 10 phone call attempts would actually get to the target. And now it's about one in 24, by the way. You navigate phone systems, you talk to gatekeepers, you, you do one thing after another, and boom, voicemail, 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 voicemail. And voicemail is not a selling medium. It just isn't. It's a dead letter box. What Connect and Sell does is displ- we displace the work, the actual human work, of navigating phone systems. Everybody thinks it's about dialing. Dialing is trivial. Navigating phone systems, which is necessarily frustrating and wasteful and not worthy of a salesperson, only to end up in voicemail over and over. Folks are still advocating, do five minutes of research before you talk to somebody. Like five minutes of research, one minute of navigating the phone systems, voicemail, six minutes wasted. Repeat 23 times to get one conversation. It's not so great. We make that go away. You just push a button. We do all that phone system navigation for you in the background. We do it fast. We do five at a time. It's like magic. You do what you want to do. 
pet your cat, have a sip of coffee, work on that email you're about to send, do some research, bloop, and you're talking to somebody. Pops up on the screen, shows you who you're talking with, what you're talking with them about. To them, it's a normal phone call, completely normal. No funny business. Nobody introduces you. There's no pauses. There's no weirdness. It's just a normal phone call. I answer, this is Chris. I hear, hey, Chris, Morgan here. I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And I'm going to go, sure, go ahead, Morgan. And then we're in a conversation. By the way, if you said to me what I just said you said to me, I would trust you because you've gotten two things across to me. One is you see the world through my eyes. You, I, I know you're an interruption too. Got it. And you throw yourself under the bus really fast. Second is you offer to solve a problem I have right now. My problem right now is you. You cold called me. I was dumb enough to answer. I thought it was from the area code where my kid goes to school or something. I don't know. I answered the phone. Why did I answer? Who knows? It was a mistake. And you immediately offered to solve that problem. Now I trust you because the FBI has found out that if you do those two things in seven seconds, you'll always be trusted. Throw yourself under the bus. Actually show the other person you see the world through their eyes, tactical empathy, and then demonstrate to them that you're competent to solve a problem they have right now. Problem they have right now is you. You are definitely competent to solve that problem. There's no doubt about it. You make a little mini deal. They agree. By the way, almost everybody agrees to listen to you for 27 seconds because it's not worth fighting. Just go ahead and listen. It's over. You got a promise. And after the next 27 seconds, you've kept your promise because you've told them why you called and see where it goes from there. What's really what we do at Connect and Sell is really simple, but it's big. We have like 600 plus people right now at this moment, 611 people navigating phone calls on behalf of hundreds of salespeople. Those salespeople, instead of dialing, navigating, being frustrated, having to, having to work on their own emotions, they don't have to work on their own emotions anymore. They can work on the prospect's emotions, where the action is, right? It's kind of funny. To, we tell people cold calling, oh, you got to be brave. You got to be persistent. One more call, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you make that go away. Be relaxed. Have fun. Have a nice conversation with somebody. Who really cares? You weren't talking to them before. Maybe it'll go somewhere. Kind of big, when you came into Connect and Sell, what were the changes you made? What were some improvements that you made? I'm interested to hear, like, are there any big themes that, kind of like those aha moments, you, aha moment you had with the gatekeeper to gatekeeper or admin to gatekeeper? What are, what are some things like that? I'm interested to hear that. Big, big aha moment was I was talking with Melanie Fitzgerald over at Agilent one day. And one of my reps had me, helping out. So I was in a third or fourth meeting. She's brilliant and she's running a big in the big inside sales organization, a big company. Agilent used to be part of HP. And I just suddenly realized she was never going to buy anything. We we're going to talk forever. The the insight was the aha which totally changed the company was I just said, "Melanie, but I love talking with you and I never want to have another conversation with you." And she said, "Well, why is that?" And I said, "Well, I figure that we're just going to talk and talk and talk, and I'll go to my grave without us ever actually being able to do anything you know, commercial with each other that might be helpful. And she goes, huh. I said, how about this? I'm going to jump on a plane. I'm going to come out across the country. I was in California. I'll come out to Delaware, and I'll get one of my customer success people, and we'll just go into production together. 
for free for one full day. And we'll call it, let's just call it an intensive test drive. So let's stop talking and let's just experience this thing. Not a demo, not a POC, not any of that stuff. Let's just get in the Ferrari and drive it around the track together and see what happens, see what it feels like. And she said, you do that? And I said, sure. I jumped on a plane, went out there, and we had an incredible experience, <laughs> incredible. I was one of these, like, that was where everything changed in the business. We changed from selling by talking to selling by experiencing together, raw experience. And we do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these intensive test drives a year. They're like a lottery ticket, too. You know, Tony Safoyan over at SADA, he said after, uh, on his podcast, I asked him, didn't you guys make some money on your test drive or some such question? I was his guest. And his, uh, his VP, Billy Franz, he laughed and he said, Chris, we made tens of millions of dollars of pipeline that day. It's free. That's not really that relevant. Who cares? Unless it's useful. But what it's useful to do is to, to let somebody experience the speed. What we didn't get was we thought you could sell the numbers. It's 10 times more conversations. You, it, your team can be much smaller. You can dominate markets faster than you could otherwise. But what turned out to be interesting to people was just the experience. It was like the skepticism was about the experience. I'm going to sell you that Tesla. Should I talk about Teslas forever or get you behind the driver's seat and say, look, a straight, nice piece of road here. Just put your foot on the floor. Let's see what this feels like. Really letting people experience the results, right? I want to get your take on uh, modern sales floors today. And there's a lot of conversation, noise on LinkedIn about different sales channels, social selling, email, cold calling. What do you think, the, the rise of the silent sales floor, what do you think is going on with modern sales floors today when it comes to prospecting? Is there a big issue there? Yeah, well, it's funny. Folks will take the path of least resistance that appears to go in the right direction 100% of the time. It is the dog, the bone, and the chain link fence thing all over again. What is it that seems that it moves you forward? I'll send you an email. Well, why should I send the email? Why don't I have a bot send the email? It's just a bunch of text. There must be some optimal email out there that's worth sending to people like you. So I'm going to send the, the Morgan class email to all Morgans, right? And now my bot's doing the thing. And my silence goes from not, even, from not talking to not even keystrokes. Now we're just like mm -hmm. letting the bots do their thing. And then we sit back and wait and see what happens, right? And it, it seems like you're making progress. And you're also not exposing yourself. There's no concern about rejection or feeling bad, right? And meanwhile, the issue, I think the issue is this. A, an email that is read contains about 5,000 bits of information. That's it, if they read the whole thing. Your voice contains 20,000 bits of information per second. Almost all of it emotional. Almost all of it allowing somebody to do the one thing they have to do as a buyer. Decide if they trust you or not. Because that's all buyers do. They're only deciding two things. Do I trust you? And are you competent? Are you an expert? That's something I might need. That's it. There is nothing else that happens in sales. Once somebody trusts you and they believe that you're an expert in something they might need, they will take a next step with you. It is truly, truly as simple as that. Can you get somebody to trust you through silent techniques? 
And the answer is no, there's not enough information. It's actually an information theory problem. There's only 5,000 bits of information in a read email. One second of conversation is four emails. It takes about seven seconds of conversation to get somebody to trust you, 140,000 bits, at which point they have enough information from your voice to decide if they want to take a next step with you. And until they decide to take a next step with you, trust you enough to actually turn indecision into action, you actually haven't made any any progress in that sale. Because the progress starts along a trust dimension, and then it's got to go somewhere. Now, it turns out value is a bad place to go. That's a different matter. It's It's good to go from trust to curiosity. It's bad to go from trust to value. Because when you go from trust to value... Then the, and that's what people load their emails up with is value, 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 and all their other channels, value, 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 value. The problem is you're telling them they don't know how to do their job. People don't like to be told they don't know how to do their job. It's not their favorite thing. Stranger mm-hmm. walks up to you and says, you suck. Mm, that's not great. Right. <laughs> Stranger walks up to you and says, I found something of yours, and I'm wondering what it is. It's like, you're going to, it's like, what do you mean you found something of mine and you're wondering what mm-hmm. it is? Curiosity will stimulate action in a, a trust context. Now, you walk up to somebody in a threatening way and you try that, and it's like, they're going to run away, right? But if you get them to trust you just that little bit, then you can offer curiosity. So I think the silent sales floor is a path of least resistance. It becomes popular. And of course, when it sets the standard, well, you get what you get. That's the standard. The baseline is what you get. And we go into our test drives. And remember, Elena Hess over at Thomson Reuters MyPay, in the middle of a test drive, I had not met her. She is the general manager, CEO of that division. And sales floor is rocking. They're making a bunch of noise during the test drive. I don't know what their baseline is, right? I didn't hear them the day before. I just showed up. This is back when we showed up. But here I am in Michigan. Going, okay, where am I? What am I doing? No, wait, I think I was, this was in Minneapolis, actually. And anyway, I walk out on the floor, and there's the CEO. I said, Elena, what are your thoughts? And she said, I have no thoughts. I have tears of joy in my eyes. You have turned my silent library into a sales floor. Mm. And that is the new benchmark. That's the new baseline, right? But I think it's just become the baseline. I've walked out on sales floors where all you hear is typing. All you hear is typing. Well, typing can't carry enough information into somebody's midbrain to allow them to trust you, which is the essential first step of a sales relationship. From a psychological point of view, email just doesn't hold enough information to build trust. You can't transmit. It doesn't have the bandwidth to really build trust. I feel like... That's one fundamental thing that changed the way I viewed sales. Working under an early top sales rep I worked under was really the, he was 100% phone and it was really the, the confidence in his voice and the confidence in his communication really made people comfortable immediately, very, very quickly. He'd been doing it for a very long time. You know, you have those people who they're, they have the, unconscious confidence, right? They're doing something, they don't even know why they're so good at it. That was this guy. And I feel like that was the biggest kind of light bulb moment for me was understanding that that transference of emotion and transferring that confidence to the prospect in an in initial, when you're picking up the phone and you're a stranger is of utmost importance. Glad you brought that up. 
I think this is why I have a podcast. I'm writing a book on the subject, though. It's called Market Dominance. And it's not a joke. It's like, I truly believe that the mathematics of market dominance starts with trust building 100% of the time in seven seconds and doing that at pace and scale. The reason that we, we do a thing called flight school, you see the little logo here, we teach people how to talk on the phone. One wouldn't think that's our business. That should be other people's business. People have been sales training forever. But what we learned is we were amplifying suck. We were amplifying suck. We would get reps 30, 40, 50 conversations with decision makers a day with no effort, and nothing would happen. Nothing. And we'd listen to them and go, well, what's not happening here? And the answer is, number one, for seven seconds, didn't actually build trust. The rep was busy fumbling around trying to sound important. And when you try to sound important, you get rejected. You want to get psychological pushback, reactance, just say you're great. That's all you have to do. We help companies like X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Well, the rep's nervous, and so they're trying to borrow some importance, some stature from somewhere, from their firm and its accomplishments. What it comes across as is a guy just called me up and told me how great he is. Now we're on the third grade <laughs> playground. My mm-hmm. daddy's stronger than your daddy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Boom, dead. It's crazy to do that, but reps do it because nobody's taught them how to be consciously competent at building trust 100% of the time, a little bit with the words and mostly with the voice. When you say, I know I'm an interruption, you don't say, I know I'm an interruption, or I know that I'm interrupting your day, or anything like that. You got you know, a little tiny piece of time to throw yourself under the bus. You're going to make a hard cut over the middle and get hit. That's it. You're a wide receiver. Get ready. You don't want to make the hard cut? Don't play that position. That's all there is to it. You have elected to play the position that can dominate this game. There is nothing more dominant than the ability to move the ball 7 to 12 yards across the middle, causing defenses to wish they weren't on the field. But if you're not willing to make that hard cut, nothing happens. You have to commit. You have to throw yourself under the bus. And you have to prepare to be hit. It's great. You do it a few times. You learn to do it with your voice. You learn to do it with your body. Sales is done with the body. It's actually a very physical thing that you're doing. And you can use your hands when you talk and all that, but you're using your voice. And your voice is the most sophisticated set of musculature you have. You can do things with your voice. You can't do with anything else in your body. Big chunks of the human brain are devoted to what you call the, we call the ballistics of the voice. What happens in the next millisecond? What happens in the next millisecond? You can't control it, but you learn to let it flow. You learn to make that swing. You can't control a baseball swing halfway through, but you can learn to make the swing. It's a ballistic act. It's, a lot, it's very athletic. I think that's why sales attracts athletes, actually, because if you're really good at it, you're doing something that's very athletic. You're doing it with a set of muscles. You don't think of it as an athlete's muscles, but they're the most sophisticated, complex, managed muscles in, well, in the entire animal kingdom. Right? We, we're impressed by something that can jump a long ways or do whatever. Right? Trust me, there is nothing like your voice. Your voice, can you can learn to use it. Now, some people have a harder time with it. They're constrained by how they grew up. They were told not to speak expressively. 
And I think that's a hard thing to overcome. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of determination. And it's like overcoming a, a stutter or something like that. It's not easy. But in sales, your voice is the, it's both the tool and the weapon. It's the tool you're using. And it's almost like a key opening a lock in somebody's midbrain that allows them to accept you as a person. That you might be on their side. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? It's a stranger who seems to be an expert at something who might be on my side. But only the voice can get us there. Now the question is, well, can you exercise your voice at pace and scale? And that's what we do for a living is we unleash that. You want to do it 50 times a day instead of three times a day? You're doing it 50 times a day. What is next for Connect and Sell? Well, two things. One is there's a whole other world around the voice and around conversations that involves data. What do these conversations mean? Everything from the mundane, which is, does so-and-so exist? Do they pick up the phone, answer the phone? It's blah, blah, blah. You see companies like Dream Info are out there being pulling down valuations in the public markets of billions of dollars with contact data. Now, they're buying other companies to do conversation analytics and this and that. But when you come right down to it, contact data is worth a lot. And we validate 200,000 contacts a day. We're looking at and starting into the world of, can we help more with data? Because we can connect you to people, but wouldn't you like to connect to more relevant people and connect to them more quickly? That's an area that we're doing more in. The other is this flight school thing. We've been teaching people how to be great on the phone for about four years, but we haven't been doing it as a commercial offering for more than about a year and a half. And what we're learning is that what I'll call the flight school style, true social selling, where you're selling together, even if you're physically separate. It's amazing what happens if you get, you have a sales floor, they got dispersed to their homes, and then you get them on a Zoom and they're having coached conversations and the conversations are coming when they want them in three minutes instead of you know an hour. Suddenly everything changes. We have a structured way of learning in a setting like that, learning the first seven seconds. Learning, we call it flight school because you have to learn to take off, fly the plane somewhere, deal with turbulence, <laughs> objections, and, and land the meeting. That's why we call it flight school. Four two-hour sessions, intensely coached. First session, we coach just the first seven seconds of the conversation. Mm. They're real conversations, they're lives. You're setting meetings, you're making money. But you're going to be coached only on the first part because, frankly, that's where folks are screwing up at the beginning. They need to get great. Flight school is a big deal for us, and what I call uh, conversation optimization. We have three people now in a, a department that just does conversation optimization with folks. Helps them be great in those conversations. Not just, here's a book or here's some role play or whatever, but here's an experience, an ongoing experience, a coach, blitz and coach kind of ongoing experience where you can get great and you can stay great and you can produce a meeting per hour of of prospecting. That's kind of our goal is to take people from their 0.25 meetings per hour that they average, even using Connect and Sell. Most people will average setting one meeting every two days using the phone Mm. in B2B. We get that down to 0.25 to 0.5 meetings per hour with Connect and Sell. With the whole flight school concept, we look to get that up to one meeting per hour. Now you're in real control of your market. 
-hmm. And then for people who really want to become superstars, we have folks who are doing two and a half, three, three and a half, four meetings an hour. And that's a different world. That's just cutting into a market anywhere you want. Yeah. And, and doing it independently, that's another area we're working with folks on. That's big for Connect and Sell is, look, onboarding takes too long. You should be able to onboard a new rep, especially a BDR, SDR, whatever, in less than one day and have them fully productive. And it's doable. We do it all the time now with folks. And it's like there's a huge talent shortage out there. How do you get more people on and how do you make the job more fun? Those are big areas. Connectandsell.com. Chris Beal, thanks so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Morgan, amazing conversation. Awesome. You have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening.